Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Self-Control Through Torah. I'm David Gottlieb, Director of Jewish Studies at the Spertus Institute for Jewish Learning and Leadership in Chicago. And it's a pleasure. You are? Yeah, I am. And I just wanted to start by saying, I don't think I get to say this so often, but it's really a pleasure doing this with you. But I am... This is really fun. Yeah. I'm Modia Silva, a psychotherapist in Toronto, Canada. And we are embarked on a Torah journey, learning self-control by reading the weekly Parsha and using the lens of Rabbi Menachem Mendel Leffen's Cheshbon Hanefesh, the early pioneering work of the Jewish ethical self-improvement discipline of Musar. So what we do, Modia and I, each week is to look at the Torah portion in light of a particular midah or character trait. We stay on that trait for four consecutive weeks. So we read four different Torah portions according to whatever character trait we happen to be on. So two dials, as it were, are turning at the same time. One dial changes each week. That's the Torah portion. One dial changes every four weeks. That's the character trait that we're looking at. And this week, the dials are on the Parsha of Miketz in the book of Genesis and the character trait of Seder or order. And Moja, there's a lot to say about uh, order in this week's chapter. And I just want to say, um, we were talking before we started recording, uh, as we read what Rabbi Leffen has to say about each character trait, it's interesting to note that he he has written in this very slender book, a lengthy introduction. Uh, he's written a whole chapter on the procedure for doing the work of character development. But then when he gets to the description of the particular character traits themselves, the chapters are extremely short. The chapter on order is just a couple of pages. And I think the message here is you have to have the framework uh, and you have to understand what this, first, you have to understand what this work is. Then you have to have the framework and the discipline to put it in. And after that, you got to stop, as you said, intellecting and just do the work. I think we're here to help each other and to help our listeners understand what the work is and how to do the work. What do you think? I 100% agree. So I, our audience doesn't know this or probably doesn't know that David and I, um, have been learning together on a weekly basis for somewhere between 18 and 20 years. And we, you know, we work our way through different texts, through religious texts, Torah texts. And at the end of each time that we learn together, we create homework for ourselves. And then the next week we meet and we was like, okay, how was it? Like, what did you do? Because it has Musa has to get beyond the intellect. I mean, it has to include the intellect, but it's got to be able to turn that into action for self improvement. Absolutely. So I, yeah, I completely agree. Um, it's, and I want to say then, maybe before we jump into the Parsha, in terms of action and you know, making it real, there's something that I tell my clients about halt, H A L T, that. If they are hungry, angry, lonely, or tired, 
they probably aren't going to be able to order their intellect well enough, sequence it well enough to enter into conflicts, to have serious discussions, to right? And so I put that out because I just took a breath as you were speaking and I realized just how tired I am, that I'm really tired. And it's only, it's, it's morning time here, but I'm tired. And so I want to be as mindful as I can be for, the, for, for this episode to monitor my tiredness and see how it impacts my ability to order my thoughts, to order my actions, and to separate out my emotions so that I can have that sort of discernment and clarity. That's going to be my job I over think that's, while. Okay. That's um, the reason that's, I think, so important for you to point out, and, and especially in light of the Torah portion that we're discussing today, is that this is um, <clears throat> uh, the second Torah portion in a row where we're seeing the effect that sleep and dreams can have on people and events. When, it's not just when we're tired, as you and I both are. This may just be a permanent condition for us now, I'm not sure, but it also <laughs> has to do with just how life is at the moment. But when when you're tired, your animal soul, right, the, the physical mechanism in which we live is crying out for certain kinds of attention that work against the character trait of order. Our body wants what it wants when it wants it. And some things that the body wants are definite um, uh, kinds of needs and nourishment that the body should have, but there are also appetites that draw us away from creating order in our lives. At the beginning of this Torah portion, Miketz, um, we're told about a dream that Pharaoh has, and it says uh, in chapter 41, verse 8, the next morning, his spirit was agitated. So it's not just exhaustion, but sometimes agitation can result from uh, from the preceding circumstances of what kind of rest and regeneration we get. And we see at in this Torah portion that even the most powerful, the most mighty, the most wealthy, the most well-attended people in the world can be assaulted um, by their animal appetites and souls and mechanisms and drawn away from order into this, um, into this uh, scenario comes a humble prisoner, Joseph, who is able to interpret the dreams. And I want to point out that um, this Parsha is almost always read, and this year is being read, I believe, we're recording this a little in advance, during Hanukkah. And uh, it is remarkable for its message of the ability of the weak to influence the powerful. That is a message of Hanukkah, and that is a message of this Torah portion. Um, it is a message for our time, and it is also a message in terms of our ability to create order, Moja, because in many respects, we are weak before our animal appetites, our distractions, right? Our phones, our technology, our jobs, our numerous commitments. And yet, this Torah portion and this holiday teach us that the weak can overcome the powerful. Our, right. our puny minds, our fragile souls, our, our 
our timid witnessing selves can overcome all these powerful influences to create meaningful order in our lives. Yeah, I think one of the themes I just heard you say, because uh, I, I think you said that really beautifully, one of the themes that jumped out to me as you were talking was that there's an internal order required and an external order. That, Absolutely. Right? That I, going back to the line that you just had from verse 8, chapter Forty-one. Forty-one. Yes, thank you. Uh, chapter forty-one, verse eight, where you say um, his spirit was troubled, and the Targum says it was agitated. That Rashi says it was ringing within him like a bell. He was so distracted that oh my gosh! I went to a meditation retreat once, and there was a big bell, an enormous bell. I, I bet the diameter of that bell, I'm guessing, was probably about four or five feet. And oh at, four, at 4 a.m. every morning, they rang that bell to wake us up. And the dogs howled. And it, you could tell that the howling was a howl of pain, not a howl of, oh, wow. hey, good morning. <clears throat> so I, I think that's what Rashi is saying is it rang within him like a bell. It was so distracting that there was no way he could order his thoughts, emotions, actions, you know, anything about him. Um, so I think it requires that internal so that, as we'll see later in the Pasha, Joseph then does an amazing job externally of ordering the entire country, right? Yes, yes. And I how, think that, that's our challenge, I think, is how do we work internally so that we can then make a, a positive impact externally? I 100% agree. I want to add that I think um, uh, there is an implicit challenge in order uh, to to the ego. Uh, and I think that uh, the challenge is that when we are capable of creating order, when we develop the discipline to do so, uh, we are in danger of thinking that it's all us. This is a problem that Joseph has in his early life. And I think this is a challenge that is posed when Pharaoh says in uh, uh, chapter 41, verse 39. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all this known to you, there is none so discerning and wise as you. Really, Pharaoh is playing to his ego already using God, but playing mm -hmm. to Joseph's ego. Pharaoh says, you shall be in charge of my court, and by your command shall all my people be directed, and only with respect to the throne shall I be superior to you. What's happening here from a psychological perspective? Um, the, the intellect is being robed with authority. There's a danger here. There's certainly a benefit, but there's a danger. Pharaoh further said to Joseph, see, I put you in charge of all the land of Egypt and removing his signet ring from his hand, Pharaoh put it on Joseph's hand and he had him dressed in robes of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. He had him ride in the chariot of his second in command and they cried before him, Abrek. Thus he placed him over all the land of Egypt. Now, when any midah, when any soul trait, even a virtuous one like order is put in control of everything, it can get a swelled head. Early in his life, Joseph is put at the head of his family, even though he is the second youngest, 
merely by virtue of the fact that he is his father's favorite. And he sees this as granting him a certain kind of impunity. Here, I want to suggest what we are seeing is the beginnings of the enslavement of the Hebrew people, the Israelite people, in the very act of the granting of authority to Joseph. The seeds of enslavement are laid. Whenever one Midah is put in ultimate control over all the others, there is the possibility of enslavement to that Midah. That is why Musar has a program where you rotate through Midot. You don't stick with one for an entire year. You have to balance among them. Otherwise, one will come to rule over you. The danger here, I'm going on a bit, and I'll stop in a moment. The danger here uh, that is being expressed is also a virtue, but the danger is that uh, the ability to create order uh, can lead to a kind of uh, mental and emotional dictatorship, and a certain amount of order is a blessing and certainly beneficial. Too much order creates a kind of inner authoritarianism that is very dangerous to ourselves and to our relationships. What do you think? Wow. What I think is, wow, that's brilliant. Um, it really, that's, that's really good. It's a, it's a beautiful way of saying what we've been learning for years, but I hadn't quite heard it that way before. I'm, yeah. You know, as you as you pointed out in our last episode, we've been learning together for, I don't know, Moja, every time you say how long we've been learning for, it gets longer by like five years. <laughs> I thought it was like 12 or 15. You said it was 18 years. It's certainly been a long time. And in all that time, uh, you have taught me a lot about different sources and about different modalities and about different therapeutic ways of looking at things. And I think this insight is due in large part to our, my study with you, you know, you, you and I both studied contemplative traditions. We both studied uh, and practiced Buddhist meditation for a while. And there are lots of warnings in that tradition about the ego here too. I think there are warnings um, about the ego and I'm, and I'm, and I'm worried that I might be justifying my own predilection for improvisation over the creation of order. I'm worried I'm justifying here my desire not to put order in control. I'm worried about that. I think it's good to worry. I, 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 I honestly, not worry, worry, worry me, but to have a level of concern that I think once we settle in and say, I've really nailed this, you know, that's the time to start worrying. When I've really perfected this meter, then you, then you should really go talk to someone and, you know, get, get put straight. Right. I think you're right. And and the robing by Pharaoh of Joseph is sort of saying, okay, this is in control. Now. This is this is who you are now, you know? Right. It, it is, and this will be a controversial thing to say, but it is a bit of a critique of, of current Orthodox Judaism that places so much emphasis on the intellect and, yes. and gives short shrift to emotions and the physical body and mo movement and you know, anything other than intellect leading to wisdom. I would like to say that that is not only true of, of, of Orthodox Judaism, which you would know better than I, because I, I, I'm more of a uh, sort of conservative slash post-denominational Jew than an Orthodox Jew, but um, I see it as a problem of Western life in general, um, that we lead with our heads, that we are rational 
uh, or, or fancy ourselves to be rational beings that we uh, favor data uh, and intellect over intuition and perception. And uh, because I'm a scholar uh, of, of Jewish memory, um, I note that you know now memory has become almost a purely technological term. How much data does this machine have the capacity for? In Jewish and Israelite tradition, memory is much more uh, affective, inclusive of moods, feelings, sensations, uh, ideas. And memory is not just backward-looking, it's forward-looking. It's about how you imagine the future. So the future that's being imagined for the Israelites at this point is this person who's been exiled is now in charge. Uh, and there's there's always, and I think this is the point that you've helped me to understand, In you, you focus on Amidah, but you never, do you ever put Amidah in charge? Well, do you ever put Amidah in charge? So I'm trying to think about that as an abstract. I think that you can put a Mida in charge of other Midat, but you have to still be a witness. You have to still sit above that entire process so that you so that you don't you don't get embroiled in that process itself, such that you know you don't see the forest for the trees or the trees for the forest. Or... I, th I think you're absolutely right. And I want to suggest that in chapter 42, that is exactly the role that Joseph plays with his sons. He is the faculty that's overseeing all the Midot at the top of chapter 42. When Jacob saw that there were food rations to be had in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you keep looking at one another? In other words, get off your butts. We're starving here. What are you doing? This is this is Jacob realizing a certain kind of paralysis has set in. And if you look at the sons as, as the Midot of this family, they're in paralysis. And Jacob is that faculty that says, we got to get moving or we're in mortal danger. Now I hear, he went on, that there are rations to be had in Egypt. Go down and procure rations for us there that we may live and not die. And then the 10 brothers go down. If Jacob hadn't said anything, they might have starved to death. Nothing might have happened. Right. They, they could, never would have found Joseph. And they would have just sat there thinking and talking, thinking and talking, thinking and talking. So there's, uh, it, it makes me think of this story of the um, the altar of Kelm, Reb Simcha Zissel Ziv, who was one of the one of the founders after Reb Yisrael Salanta, then it's sort of the next generation, right? One of the three main schools of Musa, that he sent his son away to another town to, to a yeshiva to go learn. And he went to visit his son because he wanted to see how the learning was going. But in the middle, when he arrived, all the boys were in the study hall in the base medrash learning. And instead of going into the base medrash to look at how his son was learning, he went up to the boy's bedroom and he started pulling the bedside drawers open. And he looked at his suitcase and he looked, he, he looked at his bed and he saw that everything in the bedroom was in order. And then he knew that he didn't have to go down to the base medrash to go look at his son's study habits. Wow. I love that. So I think it is what you just said. Like Jacob, <clears throat> I think you may have said it a couple of episodes ago that the 12 sons are different aspects of Joseph. Uh, sorry, of Jacob. 
<clears throat> and so right. they are essentially are 12 midot that make up a whole person. And it needs that whole person sometimes to separate from the midot or the process to go, hey, what, what are we doing? Are we actually doing this right? No, we're not. You're thinking too much. Right, right. And this is why the number 13 is significant and sacred in Judaism because of the 12 tribes and the unity is the plus one that makes up the whole. With Joseph and ja with Jacob, it is the 12 <clears throat> sons and Jacob that make up the whole. And it is um, the different characteristics that they struggle with that really informs the constant challenge of Musar. And that is why a typical Musar program consists of 13 midot. You focus on one for four weeks at a time for, uh, and you do 13 of them. And that gets you 13 times four is 52. That gets you through a calendar year of constant personal self-development without putting any one midah in lasting control over the others. In other words, this family and its challenges and its dysfunctions not only has set our pattern possibly in you know mythological slash historical terms, but in psychological terms. That's the beauty of of the of the work that you and I are embarked on trying to go through the entire Torah, talking about it from a Musar perspective, is that there is a constant uh there are constant lessons in terms of history, in terms of mythology, in terms of making meaning in life, and in terms of balancing one's traits. And here, the what is what is being balanced is uh, especially later on in the portion is Joseph becomes sort of the master of the family, uh, but we see him struggling mightily with the resurfacing of the suffering he experienced at the hands of his brothers. It doesn't seem that he ever intends to actually enslave them, but he definitely wants them to think that he's going to enslave them. He wants them to suffer. I don't know what to make of this from a Musar perspective and specifically with the trait of order in, in Miketz, Joseph creates a lot of disorder. He creates havoc amongst the family by saying, I'm not, you know, uh, you got to bring the youngest son or no food for you. Then he places his silver goblet in, in Benjamin's bag and says, okay, now he's my prisoner. And the Torah portion ends with us thinking uh, uh, that, he, that he won't accept all the other brothers instead of Benjamin. He's like, nope, I'm not going to enslave you. I'm going to enslave him. Right. So Joseph, if we're talking this week about order, Joseph is creating disorder. Now, there's one redeeming factor. We know that he really doesn't intend to enslave his beloved youngest brother, his only full sibling, we should add. Sometimes, for the sake of order, you have to create disorder. We've talked in the previous episode about, and a little bit now, about my pension for improvisation. Improvisation is creating disorder so that you can then summon the resources to create order out of disorder. That's part of what makes improvisation so thrilling. The, the thing I'm struggling with is, is it necessary for us to, um, to create disorder 
in order to create order? Or is that just the ego working? It, it's it's a hopelessly broad question, but I want to know what you yeah. have to say about it. Yeah, no, I think it's a great question. I It makes me think yesterday, I have a new client and um, usually they just leave and then they might come back. But this time, this client sent me a text message after the session, like multiple, many hours after the session and said, I haven't done therapy before, but I have to tell you, I thought I would leave feeling good and I feel terrible. Is this normal? And is it okay? Or is there a real problem? And, and it made me think about what, you know, my initial training in therapy is in gestalt therapy and the founder there were really two founders. One one person gets credit for founding it, Fritz Perls. But really, it's Fritz Perls had one model, and his wife, his estranged wife, Laura Perls in New York, had a different model for Gestalt. <clears throat> Fritz's model was to frustrate the neuroses, and Laura's model, his wife's model, was is to provide adequate support so that change can happen. And thankfully, I'm schooled in the Laura Perls model more than anything. And so I help clients build support. But Fritz was all about creating disturbance, shaking things up. And I think that there's value in shaking things up because, as we've said before, we're creatures of habit. We're we're pattern-making machines. And we have to accept that sometimes those patterns that we've created will keep us locked in lower levels of consciousness. And I think creating a disturbance, shaking it up like Joseph did, um, helps shake up the whole disturbance so that something new and better can emerge. I love that. Uh, And I think about, that makes me feel a little bit better as a teacher in my position as director of Jewish studies at Spurtis. And as a a member of the teaching faculty, I do a fair amount of teaching. Um, And and, and the students are typically adult learners. These are, these are, people who have busy jobs. They're not young students aiming for fellowships and postdocs and professorships. They're, they're in it for the love of the game, um, but they're busy. You know, They have multiple commitments. They're adults leading the lives of adults. And sometimes I throw a lot of material at them and they get a little overwhelmed, especially at the beginning. And I typically try to reassure them and say, hold on, it's all going to make sense later. And my my goal, which I reach, I think more often than not, is that in the end they say that was great. It was terrifying at the beginning. There was it felt like there was just too much information, but but um, this is going to resonate with me well after the class is over. And ideally, I think that's what you want. You want something um, that people can keep learning from after the formal sessions of learning are over. As a therapist, you want people to walk out of the office and still be contending, right? with what was going on while they were in the office. That means the process is happening. The, the, the modalities are percolating. The message is penetrating. And uh, part of what we see uh, in Miketz is um, the brothers and Joseph still contending with the after effects of what they have all experienced and done to each other. Um, for example, uh, in chapter uh, 42, uh, verse 18, on the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you shall live for I'm a God fearing man. If you're honest men, 
let one of you brothers be held in your place of detention while the rest of you go and take home rations for your starving households. But you must bring me your youngest brother, that your words may be verified and that you may not die. And they did accordingly. Here's verse 21. They said to one another, alas, we're being punished on account of our brother because we looked on at his anguish, yet no pay, paid no heed as he pleaded with us. That is why this distress has come upon us. Now, we learned something here that we didn't know when they originally threw him in the pit. He pleaded with them. He begged them. He needed to get out. And they sat and had lunch. They mm -hmm. ate a meal next to the pit while he was pleading for his escape. And then they let Midianite traders come and buy him and take him away. Uh Ruvain, then Ruvain spoke up and said to them, did I not tell you do no wrong to the boy, but you paid no heed. Now comes the reckoning for his blood. All the time they're having this conversation, they don't know that Joseph can understand them. He's standing right there. They're arguing with each other, but he knows. So for me, the Musar lesson with respect to order here is that you have to permit a certain amount of disorder. You have to let the other Midot fight with each other. And? Because how they come to confront their imbalances. Yes, go ahead. Well, no, I was just going to continue because two sentences after that sentence, uh, well, the next sentence, uh, they didn't know Joseph understood them, right? Because the interpreter was between them. So like you just mm -hmm. said, and then it says, and he, meaning Joseph, turned himself about from them and he cried and then he returned to them and spoke to them and got intellectual again so yeah, yeah so this distress is okay it might bring forth it might burst the dam of emotion so yeah. that you can release the emotion and then get back to your order and go do things yeah. with much more clarity right right uh this is um you know we 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 don't talk much about this, but I feel like um, for Jews and students of Judaism everywhere, this is such a time for us. Our emotions um, in the aftermath of October 7th are overwhelming. We have removed ourselves uh, to cry a little bit, and now we have to put the intellect back in charge and right. understand how to go forward. This is a lesson that happens repeatedly in Jewish text and in Jewish history, and here I agree with you completely. Um, what we are seeing is that emotional overwhelm and upset can be productive. We never want to lose control that way, but sometimes it's necessary. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So on Monday of this week, oh, yes, whenever it was, anyway, there was a big rally in Ottawa, in the nation's capital in, of Canada, um, where somewhere between seven and 10,000 Jews went on to Parliament Hill to protest against the incredible increase in anti-Semitism in Canada. And I know in America and everywhere else as well, right? Anyway, they had <clears throat> they had 70 buses, 70 coaches lined up to drive from Toronto to Ottawa. And buses went from Montreal and then Ottawa and all around, but 70 buses from Toronto. 17 of those buses were going to be provided by one subcontractor who that morning at seven o'clock just never showed up. Not one of the coaches showed up. <clears throat> they called, the Jewish Federation called, no answers. They are certain that it was an anti-Semitic act to stop the Jews from being able to go and 
protest and, and a peaceful protest, but nonetheless a protest. And um, I just lost my train of thought. You were talking about, oh, yes, sorry, right. So there's a lot of emotion. So I heard that. I had some of my family heading up there, and I heard that their coach didn't show up. And then I I watched my emotions, and I was like, okay, stay with the emotion and just let it flow through you. And it was mostly anger and sadness. And then go do something. And so in this case, I didn't have to do anything, but they did. They felt their emotion, and then they immediately jumped into action and said, how do we get buses and coaches to replace and they got they all like god bless them they all got onto yellow school buses and all these adults had to sit you know with their knees up in their chest for like 10 hours of driving (laughs) but wow but they put their they let their emotion run and then enough's enough let's let's get back to order and jump to the intellect and solve the problem yeah 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 so this is uh this is the lesson that we see and we see um uh uh in jacob us and in joseph two different kinds of leadership models one is uh uh jacob who who is i would say uh tends to complain who tends to feel put upon um but who is but who is able to be planful and deliberate. He rattles the cages of his sons. He creates a lot of hurt among them, but he also can stir them to action. Joseph has inherited some of his capacity for deception, but Joseph also has um, a a direct uh, channel to deep, divinely emplaced understanding of the pattern and nature, not only of events, but of dreams as a certain kind of prophecy. It's interesting to me that in Je- in Joseph, we see um, a, a, a more um, muted, I would say, or indirect channel to God than we've seen with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We don't see God speaking directly to Joseph. We see Joseph interpreting and divining dreams and events uh, for their innermost and their prophetic meaning. Uh, we are not, I don't believe, uh, and our tradition doesn't believe that we are no longer called upon to be prophets. We are, we are called upon to draw lessons um, from prophetic and uh, patriarchal and matriarchal figures. The lesson here is that um, uh, rashness is not leadership, that, uh, that uh, brutality is is not order, and that uh, compassion can unleash emotions which feel disorderly, but that in the end create the order that comes with healing. What say you? Well, what I say is I just had to sigh because, because you're right, and it makes our life that much more challenging, that the further and further we move away from Abraham, Isaac, and J- and Jacob – then yeah, we have to be much more careful about how we manage ourselves in the world. And maybe right. that maybe that takes me into there's another idea I want to share. And maybe this is a segue into it. That you were talking about unity before, unity of the brothers with Jacob, the 13 of them. And um 
I wanted to share something from Rabbi Desla, Eliyahu Desla, who was a great Musar Rebbe. He was, I, correct me if I'm wrong, I think he married the granddaughter of the altar of Kelm. I think you're right about that. Yeah, so he was definitely in the school of Kelm. He founded a kollel in Gateshead, England, which now is like one of the top, I think it's one of the top two kollels in the country, in England. Anyway, he has a, he gave a series of lectures that got compiled into uh, books called Mikhtav Meliahu. Um, what's it in English? Uh, do, uh, I can't think of what it is in English. Uh, no, it's still okay. a but anyway. Still escapes me. So he he explains in one of his um one of his sections that there are numerous types of order of seder. Oh yeah, yeah. Strive for truth. Right? Oh, thank you, thank you. Yes, yeah, strive for truth. Strive for truth. Strive for, truth. Strive for yeah. truth. Um, beautiful set of books. If anyone's looking for where can you go for good Musa material. So he when it comes to order, he says there are numerous types of order. There's an aesthetic order. There's an order that helps one organize themselves in a manner so that they can actually get through their day. And then he says in spirituality, there's a third type of order that's necessary. Then he says separation and individuality or dysfunction of separate groups hinders the objective of order. On the other hand, confusion or intermingling is detrimental. And so he presents the idea that there needs to be an order of unity that has to organize multiple groups into one whole. And so we see it now in the last two months. It, it almost seems miraculous that someone told me they were on a flight to Israel a couple of weeks ago. And there was a, a rabbi with black hat, long beard, long payas, long sidelocks, sitting next to a young guy completely covered in tattoos in a wearing a t-shirt and as the as the flight from new york to, to tel aviv continued they started chatting and chatting and then they started learning torah together and i think that's the type of unity that reb desla is talking about that order can bring about can help bring about and maybe it's order out of disorder i think that's a i think that's such a beautiful anecdote and such a um uh beautiful observation it it reminds me that um that when we are divided and this is something i learned from rabbi shefa gold when we are divided um we tend to be divided because we are descending into bonds of physicality but even meaning we we are we are we separate according to our appetites and our and and we separate and we and we signal that by the different ways that we look the different costumes that we wear we signal how we are different from one another but that same kind of difference and distance uh that kind of physicality can create the seeds of our liberation in other mm -hmm. words when we break through that kind of uh, differentiation we a radical rediscover a radical commonality um and at this time almost more than any other rediscovering commonality is the great challenge i think of our era and rediscovering commonality requires a purposefulness um uh, an objectivity and a discipline that are 
uh, indicative of the midah of order and that benefit from work on the midah of order. That's wonderful. I actually, I, I love what you said. I want to throw in one extra thing as well, which is that it's incumbent on us to look for commonality, but it's also incumbent on us to honor difference. And I think you're absolutely right about that. And, and the, the two people on the plane talking, it sounds like that's exactly what they were doing, right? They were, they were, they were not trying to be or become one another. We're sharing right. a common activity and bringing two radically different perspectives to it. Yeah. So they exemplified both, both commonality and difference, and it was beautiful. That's right. The sounds of it. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, with that. I think we're going to wrap up another episode of self-control through Torah. We've been talking today about Parsha Miketz in the book of Genesis and looking at it through the lens of the Midah or the character trait of order. Again, we're going through uh, each weekly Torah portion, um, looking through the lens of a different character trait. Uh, stay tuned because we're going to keep doing this work until God willing, we get all the way through the entire Torah. Thank you as always for joining us and please encourage others to join us as well. I'm David Gottlieb. And I'm Modia Silva. Thanks so much. Bye.